the Bain Free Radio Hour. On the podcast, collaborators will not be shot but celebrated, and then maybe shot. Queen Kisses, Russian Resistance, and Hand Wavium. Plus, we continue with our complete audiobook serialization of John Ringo's Under a Graveyard Sky. All right now. Welcome to the Bain Free Radio Hour podcast. It's an honor to have you along. I'm Bain editor Tony Daniel. This time we have a discussion on co-authoring and collaboration on books. We'll be talking with two co-authors of Bain Books, one with Eric Flint and the other with David Weber. These are David Carrico, author of 1636, The Devil's Opera, an upcoming Zhao Empire entry, The Span of Empire, and Joel Presby, co-author with David Weber of new multiverse series entry, The Road to Hell. David Carrico and Joel will discuss what it's like to work with Eric Flint and David Weber and their experiences as junior partners, as it were, in these series. It'll really give you a window into the process of how these books are created and the thought and care that goes into writing them. We also continue with our complete audiobook serialization of John Ringo's Under a Graveyard Sky. Here's the news. We have two excellent short stories on the Bain.com website front page this month. One is Kiss from a Queen, which is the winner of the annual Bain Fantasy Adventure Award, given out at Gen Con every year. It's a contest we hold in the spring, and in the summer we make our decision on a winner, we being the Bain editors and a special guest, which this year was Larry Correa. Also on the website is Charles E. Gannon's story, Not for Ourselves Alone, which is set in the world of the Kane Reardon series. It's about... A last desperate stand against aliens invading the solar system. Action-packed, succinct, moving, it's a lot of fun. For the September nonfiction, we have a very entertaining article by Jim Beale called Case Studies in Handwavium. This is a fun look at the science fiction kludge of Handwavium, that is, technology that's more of a convenient plot hole filler than a possible future. Jim gives many examples from the vault of science fiction well, not greatness, I guess okayness. Kiss from a Queen, Not for Ourselves Alone, and Case Studies in Hanwavium are all available at Bain.com and in the free ebooks containing fiction and nonfiction that are available at BainEbooks.com. Wanna welcome David Carrico and Joel Presby to the podcast. Hello, folks. David Carrico claims his writing career literally began with a cliché. He finished reading a particularly bad novel and threw it across the room and declared, I can write better than that. It took a while, but eventually he began to sell stories, many of them set in the 1632 universe and published in Grantville Gazette. He's the author with Eric Flint of 1636, The Devil's Opera, and coming up next summer, The Span of Empire, the third novel in the Zhao Empire series previously co-authored by Eric Flint and Katie Wentworth. Joel Presby attended the United States Naval Academy 
After commissioning, she studied how to find and kill submarines in naval postgraduate school and began dating a submarine officer. She spent six and a half years on active duty in the Navy. Does that sound right, Joelle, the way I said it? Yes, it does. And she has lived in France, Cameroon, the United States, and Japan. She and her husband, the submarine officer, live in Virginia. Joelle is the author of Grayson Navy Letters Home, an epistolary story set in David Weber's Honorverse that appeared on the Bain.com website, and Obligated Service, which was in the Honorverse Anthology Beginnings, and coming next spring, The Road to Hell, the third entry in the Multiverse series previously co-authored by David Weber and Linda Evans. So you both are co-authors of books set in other writers' series. Plus, you both have written the third book in a series that was already underway. Katie Wentworth, who wrote the first two Jowl Empire books with Eric Flint, has passed away. And Linda Evans, who wrote the first two Multiverse books with David Weber, is unable to continue the series with David. First of all, how did you how did you come to be in this position? David, you want to start? Uh, the short answer is I asked. <laughs> uh, and Eric and ultimately Eric said yes. Uh, it was a little bit more to it than that though. In the first quarter of twenty twelve, Eric and I were doing the revisions to the first draft of Devil's Opera, getting ready to turn it into Bane. And I had been uh, thinking for some time I needed to diversify my writing uh, and, you know, prove to everybody around that I could write stuff in addition to alternate history stories. And we got to April, and we were pretty much done with the revisions. Eric, I think, was making the final polish pass. And on, on April 18th, Kathy Wentworth passed away. Well, that thought that was rolling around at the back of my mind that I needed to diversify and write other kinds of stories rolled around to the front of my mind and reminded me, you need to be doing that. So I mustered on my courage and I sent Eric an email and said, you know, would it be possible for me to step in and help finish uh, the span of empire? And he was generally agreeable with the idea, but he didn't know if at that point he didn't even know if he needed one because he didn't... Um, he didn't even know if he needed another author because he didn't know how much Kathy had completed on the novel. I mean, it had been months since they had last talked about it. Plus, there were some contractual issues that had to be ironed out between him and Bain and Kathy's estate. Mm-hmm. So I quit holding my breath and started working on other stuff. And it took about three months before Eric finally came back to me in mid-July and asked me if I was still interested in writing The Span of Empire, to which I replied, yes, and that's how I came on board. Cool. Had you already written um, The Devil's Opera with Eric by then? Yeah. Uh, Eric turned in Devil's Opera to Bain, like, on April 23rd, after Kathy passed away on April 18th. Mm-hmm. So we had finished writing it, and we were in the process of just, you know, making some edits and some some minor revisions to to get it into final form for submission. And she passed away. Hmm. So, uh, Joelle, uh, I think you had your first professional publication at Bain.com. How did you start writing with David Weber rather than just stories set in uh, Weber worlds? Well, the short answer is David Weber asked me. And I was 
very excited about the opportunity to to see him in action. Um, he helped me with the, the stories that I wrote in the Honorverse by giving me editorial direction on how he wanted to see them polished before he would accept them. But I was I was on my own writing them. But with the multiverse, he came up with the, the plot outline because he had already, with Linda, invented the world, and he had very specific plans for how he wanted the story to go. And he had a lengthy outline for the novel and which parts he wanted to write and which parts I wanted to write. And so for me, this was a master class of I was going to write over 100,000 words and I was going to have David Weber edit them and tell me which things he wanted tweaked and tell me different ways he thought it could be done and have all these times passing back and forth draft. And I've been very pleased with the opportunity. Dear listener, in case you haven't uh, guessed, we're talking to two collaborators with Eric Flint and David Weber, or I should say collaboratory authors, since I don't know what the collaborators might do. But uh, And we're talking about the way that they've interacted with these these authors and um, Eric and David, and um, it, what it's like to be sort of the junior author, the junior uh, partner um, in writing one of these books. Uh, I think it's kind of fascinating to uh, to to see the interior process of how that gets done. Before we go on, can you give us sort of an overall idea of what each series is about? Okay, uh, the multiverse is two cultures in what seems like a vast amount of space because there are these manifold uh, parallel Earths that are much like ours, except. Each culture has been expanding through naturally occurring portals to to fill and expand through hundreds of Earths, and then they happen on each other and end up at war. But the groups are not the same. On one side, we have our Canaans who have the magical abilities to operate their entire society based on magic. They have dragons. Everything that works, works because of magic. But on the other side, the Sharonans have steam and trains and firearms and have never heard of dragons. And so they have vastly different war capabilities when they come into conflict over all of these, the access to these universes. So it's a really interesting steampunk versus magic conflict. Yeah, cool. And the first two entries in the series are called? Uh, There's Hell's Gate, and then Hell Hath No Fury, and the book we wrote together is The Road to Hell. Cool. Uh, David, what about uh, the Zhao Empire books? Eric wrote a really cool afterward to Span of Empire where he kind of recounts the history of uh, the development of the series and actually lays out the role that Kathy played in it and the role that I played in it. Uh, but basically, uh, the Java Empire series is uh, a rather scrawling space opera epic. And Eric took as the central premise for the, for the series that Earth was conquered by aliens which is not a new idea, of course, but instead of Earth 
rebelling against the aliens and eventually winning their freedom again, he posited that it was going to be more like the experience of Greece when Rome conquered them or China when the Mongolians conquered them. The idea that within a couple, two or three generations, you have melded into one culture and you're now all the same people. That's kind of the, that's the direction he took the story. And I think it makes for a much more interesting story and certainly a lot less cliched. Um, the first two books deal with the aftermath of the conquest and with the first efforts of these conflicting cultures to learn to exist together and to start moving back out. Span a bit. Uh, the bad guys, there's a consistent set of bad guy aliens in the whole book called the Ekot. They are non-human, non-humanoid, and weird, and just you know, really nasty creatures to be around. And in the first two books, they kind of get knocked on the head, but the span of empire could be characterized as the Ekot strike back. <laughs> and it, it's, very, it's very much about what happens when the Jow when the and the human alliance starts reaching in, trying to find other resources, and the Ekot find out about it. And it, it, it becomes, uh, let's just say there's, uh, there's more than one battle in the book. Hmm, battles in an Eric Flint book. So uh, how, did it, how did it begin then, David? Did, did Eric have the story laid out? It sounds like you developed it together. What was the initial process like? Well, Eric is, is a firm believer in outlines. And one of the things that was different for me in writing this book as opposed to writing uh, 1636, The Devil's Opera, was I was very heavily involved in the development of the plot and the creation of the structure that was built for Devil's Opera. That was not the case in this book because I came in after the writing had already started. Eric had... <laughs> Eric had pretty much developed the plot at that point, you know, before that point even. He handed it off to Kathy for her to begin, and so I'm, I'm coming in in the middle of the process, and I had no real input in terms of the plot. Now, Eric's outline was kind of here and there. He gave me 6,000 words of outline that he had written, but it only covered about the first half of the story. So uh, we got together at Worldcon in 2012 in Chicago, and he told me the rest of the story uh, in a uh, in a face-to-face -face meeting there at the convention. And I was scribbling notes like mad and took him back home. So I, I had a, a, a fairly detailed but high-level outline that covered the first half of the book, and then I had notes of things that he just basically rattled off to me. Yeah, I want this to happen. I want this to happen. I want this to happen. And go right. Cool. And did you work off of the, those notes the rest of the way? Uh, yeah, I worked. You know, I, I pretty much followed the outline for the, for the part of the story that the outline covered. And then the rest of it, uh, he, those notes that he gave me, that's, 
that's what guided my hand in in finishing the story. Uh, and Joelle, um, yes. What about uh, I? I can't, I imagine that David had a lot of this worked out before beforehand coming in. He did. Um, he had he had a magic Bible, if you will, for for each universe, um, and then. Uh, we had a couple different programs with models of the Earth with what the political units were called and what the geographic names for for the, the continents and the major rivers and so forth on Earth in each culture's original world because they kept getting referred to throughout by, by the characters. And then we also had about 70,000 words that David and Linda had written together that hadn't made it into the second book. And so, somewhat like, like the Dow series, there, there were, except there, there was words already written, but they weren't necessarily all usable because they were, these were, after the story ended in Hell Hath No Fury, but they weren't revised, so there were whole sections that couldn't be used because the character had been killed in battle earlier in the later revisions, and so he wasn't around anymore, and things like that. Mm -hmm. Does that make sense? Yeah. So did so he had a milieu sort of. I mean, the entire like setting. Did he also have a, a point by point outline? Uh. First, we had about a five-page outline that was pretty general, and then I think it was around draft two, um, we we got an expanded outline that was mostly what he wrote with some additions by me because I'd been continuing on alone and unafraid, not realizing that. He had this longer outline sitting in his his outlook that file, is, but that didn't actually go. So th there were a few months when I I was writing, and David thought I had more instruction than I really did. Mm -hmm. What happened to that material? I it amazed me. It's in the book. <laughs> he must have liked what you're doing. So, uh, what what's your relationship, both of you, to the to the first two books in the series? Had you read them, and did you reread them uh, before you started working on the th on book three, uh, David? Oh, da I was, David Carrico. Yeah, I, w I was a huge fan of the Jow series from the very beginning. I bought the hardbacks the first days they were available, and I read and reread them multiple times, waiting for the third book to come out. Never dreaming that I would end up writing most of the third book. Um. I was probably about as familiar with the series as I could be without having been a person who actually wrote it. So that, that was an advantage for me. And it was another advantage for me that having been associated with Eric for a number of years and having just finished collaborating with him on a novel, I knew how his mind worked in terms of the kinds of things he wanted in a book. Uh, adventure, politics, combat, uh, 
social dynamics, romance, and they're all long. Eric doesn't write a short novel. His shortest one is his first one at 120,000 words. Everything else is north of 160. Of course, that's not as long as David Weber does, but you can write shorter <laughs> than Weber and still write plenty long. Yeah. Right. So, you know, I had a pretty good idea of what I was walking into when I walked into it. Did you, um, you're from Oklahoma. Did you know Kathy personally? I had met her a couple of times. There used to be a convention in Tulsa called Conestoga. And she was, she was a fixture for that convention. She was kind of like the spark plug for that con every year. And she was always there. So I attended that con three or four times and, and met her and had a couple of conversations with her. And I, you know, I liked her writing. I especially liked her, the two books she did for, for Bain, uh, Black, Black on Black and, uh, Stars Over Stars. Mm -hmm. I thought those, those were really neat books. Uh, so, you know, I had conversations with her, never dreaming that I would step into her shoes one day and, and finish a story that she had started. But the, the big surprise to me was how much I ended up having to write because, uh, I didn't expect to find 75% of the story done. Uh, I didn't even really expect to find 50% of the story done. But I was very surprised when I got the work files from Eric, and all that was in it was five chapters. Mm -hmm. Apparently, the cancer just shut down her writing pretty early on in its progress because she didn't get a whole lot done before uh, yeah. basically she quit. Yeah. Um, Joelle? Um, I had I had read Hell's Gate and Hell Hath No Fury. Um, originally, when they came out, I actually, um, when David asked me about them, I still had them on my bookshelf and hardcover, which was somewhat amazing because I'd been through several moves since they'd been printed. And it was, I think it was about seven years after they were originally released that he was asking me about book three. Um, I've... I've never had the opportunity to meet Linda Evans, so I, I I wish I could meet her one day and thank her for creating these really interesting word, yeah. worlds with David, but that has not yet happened. So did you try to um, in any way bring the, the style of the writing of those books into the third book, or was it, you know, we have to do it the way that we can do it best? I tried to get into the heads of the characters that I needed to use for the story and tried to keep them presented in the same way. Uh, there were a few characters that I wasn't confident that I was doing them justice, and so I chose alternate point-of-view characters to, uh -huh. to so try to respect the relationship that the readers have with those already established, very wonderful characters. So you picked some characters to carry forward based on your ability to write convincingly from their or, or enjoyably from their point of view. Right. And I, that doesn't mean that I cut out the characters that I had trouble presenting from their, from their perspective. I just had them presented from other characters huh. that wouldn't be jarring to the reader. Yeah. What about you, David uh, Caracode? Did, did you... I, I'm not sure what the. I think it's a just a straight, uh, st um, straight uh, third person narrative, right? Um, 
in the first two books. But, but there, uh, all three of the stories, it's told uh, limited third-person uh, viewpoint, but in, in both the original books and in Spain, there are multiple viewpoint characters available, and you use whichever one you need for the story you have. Um, it was a concern for me going into the story that Kathy uh, was the was the original writer because the and Eric goes off on this in the afterward. The reason that he chose her to be the the collaborative author for the series to begin with was because he was extremely impressed with how she realized non-human characters, how she could create non-human characters and still make them alien, but still make them characters that readers could connect to. He was very impressed with that, and that's why he brought her into that project. <coughs> and I, so I knew the cues would be a bit of a challenge, particularly when I read a lot of the, uh, you know, on Eric's website, there were postings from a lot of the fans of the series who expressed grave concern about continuing the series with somebody other than Kathy doing the aliens. So I, you know, I, I walked in with a concern that I needed to try and replicate the writing voice of the first two books as closely as I could. And it helped that I think my own natural writing voice is similar to what Kathy's was. Yeah. But I don't think there was a I don't think there was a huge difference between our, our personal styles, but I tried very hard to replicate the voice that Kathy and Eric had in the first two books. And my alpha and beta readers who were familiar with the series tell me that I got pretty close. You know, it's not going to be identical. It can't be. I'm a different person, a different writer than Kathy. But I got pretty close. And, I, you know, for a replacement writer, I think that's as good as you can hope for, that, that you got close to matching the voice and hopefully enough so that it's not a stumbling block for any of the readers. There, there are other issues in the book that make it uh, read differently from the first two books. Uh, that are much more significant than the fact that uh, somebody else wrote the first draft. You've written a previous book with Eric, and lots of stories uh, set in set in alternate history, a 1632 Ring of Fire universe. Um, the De 1636, The Devil's Opera, is it's a great entry in the series. That's a mystery thriller. You have the, a pair of detectives that are really cool. Um, did so writing history, even if it's alternate history, you have so much sort of context available to you. Um, what kind of switch in mental gears did it take to, uh, and have you written science fiction that's uh, that's more futuristically based? Actually, this is the first real science fiction I've written, but I've been reading this stuff for 50 years now. <laughs> um, yeah, it took a bit of a switch. Um, you know, the, the, the style of Devil's Opera is a little different from the style of, of, uh, Span of Empire. I mean, you're going from what's basically a police procedural with a, a, as a 
one reviewer put it, a slathering of opera frosting, <laughs> to something that is out and out, full bore, you know, pedal to the metal space opera. Uh, but it wasn't as big a transition as I thought it might involve. A pro- I mean, once I got into it, once I, you know, I reread the first two books, this time not with the, the eye of a, of a reader enjoying the story, but with the eye of a writer who's looking to continue the story. I reread them. I soaked myself in the outline and the premises and the background that Eric had provided. And it wasn't very difficult to step into the, um, the space I needed to be in to write the story, yeah. uh, which I was gratified that that was the case, <laughs> uh, because I had a lot of story to write. Uh, Kathy, the the material that I was provided amounted to Kathy had written a little bit less than ten percent of the final uh, version, mm-hmm. and uh, so I I ended up having to write. Almost ninety percent of the of the final um, manuscript from scratch. Plus, I had to go in and do uh, wordsmithing edits on part of it, uh, part of the original material, and continuity edits on all of it to to make it work. It, you know, I ended up having to do more than I really thought I was going to have to do. But I enjoyed doing it. It was it was a wonderful story to be a part of, and in a in a very real sense, it it turned into an homage or a memorial for Kathy, mm-hmm. because this this mm-hmm. is probably the last fiction that she wrote, and it's probably the last new book that's going to have her name associated with it. Mm-hmm. So I really wanted it to come out well, and I, I think it did. I, I think the, I think. Readers will be pleased with the, with the story. Well, tell us, both of you, uh, Joelle, uh, starting perhaps, what, tell us about the ongoing process as you were working. How Was there back and forth? Was there emails um, between you and David Weber? Were there, um, did you just write the whole thing and send it to him to revise? And how did the process work? David Weber and I would do Skype sessions periodically, and sometimes I would just find an issue where I was pretty sure that if I went one way or another, he would have a strong opinion about it, and I shouldn't just go right. I should ask first. Mm. Then I would call him and and tell him which two ways I was thinking of going and how it was going to affect the the half of the, the story that he was writing and find out which way he was leaning to go to make sure that they would still fit together. Because it sounds like with the Zhao universe, it was primarily being written by one person and then edited. With with me and David Weber, we were literally writing individual first drafts of different chapters, with David doing the war at the front, and I was writing the chapters from the logistics side, the po- politics of the people in the back who were sending forward the war material. Uh-huh, so it was really, uh, did did you present, and David likes to say that when he's talking to, like, Bu9 uh, folks, that, mm-hmm. that sometimes they give him ooh, shiny moments where he they suggest something that he wants to incorporate. Did he um, take some of your suggestions, go with them? He, he did. Uh, I got 
very excited by the the non-human characters on the the Sharonin side. Those are the the steampunk people who are not pure science because they also have the ability to communicate with one another through their minds. With only a small portion of the populace can do this, but then rather than having bothering with phones or telegraphs, they have people who speak mind's mind, and some of these people can speak to animals as well. So they have discovered that that whales and uh, certain apes and high-order monkeys are smarter than they thought. One of the primary characters from the first two books in the multiverse series has a mother who is an ambassador to the cetaceans, the whales, on the home world. And the, the cetaceans get a brief scene in the second book, and, well, they have more scenes in book three that I really had a lot of fun writing. Um, how about you, David? Do you How did you interact with Eric during the process of writing? Eric tends to tailor his collaborative processes to the writer that he's working with. When he's working with somebody of the, the skill level of, say, uh, David Weber or Misty Lackey, he tends to use the process like Joel just described. You know, you write these chapters, I'll write these chapters, and when we get done, I'll stitch them all together. When he's working with somebody who's uh, less experienced uh, like I am, he tends to hand the new person an outline and tell them either write this or write what you feel comfortable writing and send me the rest. Uh, this time around, you know, when I did Devil's Opera, I was involved in the upfront planning process, so all of my questions were answered. It, <clears throat> it was just a matter of getting the words down on the page. In Span of Empire, where I came in after the process had already begun, I had a certain amount of learning curve. So up front, I sent him probably 20 or 25 emails with questions about facets of the story in order to to make sure that I was clear on, on what needed, on, on where we were and where we were going. But once I got past that point, um, Pretty much, he was willing, he just said, you know, write it and let me know if you have any problems. Um, with Span, I would, you know, every couple of months maybe I'd send him an email and kind of let him know, okay, here's where I am. When I wrote through the end of the written outline and told him that, he asked to actually see what I had done at that point, which was about 82,000 words. It was about half of the novel. I sent it to him. He had a couple of comments. He sent it back to me and told me to keep going. And I, I didn't really talk to him about it again until I was finished. So it, it just kind of depends on who he's working with and how the project got started as to how much communication there is. Were you involved with the revision process, or was that all Eric, the final version that got turned in? With Devil's Opera, I was very involved because there were a number of things that uh, he wanted to tweak, uh, which wasn't surprising. I mean, it was, my first, it was my first crack at writing a novel and my first crack at writing a, a, police, a police procedural mystery. So 
there were some rough edges on that one. With Span, he may have set a record because I gave him the completed first draft on September 5th of 2014, and he turned the final manuscript into Maine on September 29th. So it was like three, three and a half weeks. Um, it was apparently it was clean enough that it didn't need a whole lot of work, which made me happy. <laughs> but uh, he did have a couple of things that needed to be changed, and uh, he was he had originally planned to work on them with me, but he was getting ready to go on a ten day vacation with his wife, so he told me just go ahead and you know. I told him I'll take a first crack at fixing them, and when you get back, if you like them, then we're done, and if you don't like them, then you've at least got a jumping-off place. And when he got back, there wasn't a whole lot left to do, so he was pretty happy with it. Excellent. Um, Joel, did, uh, what was your experience of revision? Well, first of all, I've got to tell you that I've already confessed this to Tony Weisskopf. And... I believe her comment was something along the lines of, David only does what David wants to do, and it's not your fault, he almost died. <laughs> um, during the, the, the final polish, um, David had, had sent the draft back to me for one more review, and I read through for probably the eighth time, but this time all of it all together from beginning to end, book one and book two, and then I read through the draft looking for anything that didn't match with the first two books. And I found that there was a important scene that was missing in book three that needed to be there based on how the, the story had been ended at the end of the first two books that we hadn't noticed we'd left out entirely out of the outline and, and never even written an initial draft of. Everything else was done, but we really needed that one scene. And so I called David at like 7.30 at night and told him that I hoped I was wrong, but I really thought we needed this scene. And he agreed that we needed it. And it was, it was more his kind of thing than my kind of thing. And he really wanted to write it himself. So he said he'd write it and send it to me, and I could continue my typo check, and we'd get it in the next day. Well, the next morning, time-stamped um, about 5.30 a.m., my email has this scene, and it's beautiful. And so I put it in, and I, I finished the few tweaks that are needed to make it line up with the rest of the story. It, it changed the name of one of the rooms, and so the, a room in a palace, so I had to go make sure that that was the same throughout the whole novel. And I send it back to David around 2.00. Don't get a response from him right away, which is kind of weird. So I text Sharon and find out that he was up all night writing the scene. And so he's been sleeping. Well, David calls me around 3 and is talking about how much he likes the story. And then he has to go because the squad is there. Because he's been passing out. <laughs> and it turns out that David needs a pacemaker. Yeah, well, this was when he went, when he went in the hospital. Yeah. So he was talking to you about the writing right up until they came to get him. About the writing. And even more, 
once he gets to the hospital, he calls me and starts talking about book four, <laughs> the next book in the series. So I'm taking all these notes. Meanwhile, I don't know. Is, is he giving me, like, his last will and testament? Like, this, this is where I want the story to go? And he doesn't know how he's doing. He's not telling me. Not that, of course, he would need to tell me his, his medical details, but I was very worried for him, and I'm glad he's much better. Yeah. So are we all. <laughs> yes. Um, speak, all right, so you're going to... Only series that he's not done with. You're working on a, another book in the series then. We don't have a contract for it yet, but I, I have started some work on it. Do you have uh, any other projects underway? Are you trying to write a solo novel yet? Um, I have a couple draft solo novels that have not yet reached the level where I like them. Um, what I'm working on right now is an honor story for David for the next Worlds of Honor anthology mm-hmm. that I really need to finish up and get to him. <laughs> And what about you, uh, David Carrico? Are you um, are you are you on to another project with Eric? We left Span of Empire definitely in an unconcluded state. There's definitely room for uh, additional novels to happen past the end of that novel. Um, Eric has already mentioned uh, you know, the possibility of doing a, a collaboration to for a fourth Jao novel. He's also mentioned the possibility of doing a collaboration as a, for a sequel to uh, Devil's Opera. Yeah. Well, I want you to bring those detectives back. I really like that. Uh, that was a really nice uh, entry in the series. So those are, those are on the horizon, but they're not actively being worked on at the moment. Uh, he hasn't sat down and said, okay, let's draft up a plot and get a story started. So currently I'm work. I have a couple of, uh, personal projects I'm working on. Uh, the one that's farthest advanced, I've got a fantasy novel that I'm maybe 160,000 words into that, um, I'm fairly close to being done with it. So, and I will definitely be submitting that to Bain when I have it in, in submittable condition. Cool. I want to see it. <laughs> so, um, I, have, I have one that's kind of a, it's on the borderline between young adult and light adult fantasy. And I'm about 40,000 words into it. it. It's a very humorous story, whereas this other one is not. So it, it's kind of on hold while I finish the one I'm working on, but I'll be I'll be tackling it before too long. So, any uh, parting advice from from either of you on uh, for those that maybe are trying to write collaboratively out there? Yeah, well, the the one thing I would say is uh, make sure there's somebody that has the veto power. Uh, you know, because. It's very possible that when you're writing collaboratively, you could r- arrive at a place where you you both want the story to go in a different direction, and at some point, somebody has to make a decision. So, you know, I haven't had that issue because I'm working totally within Eric's uh, universes here, so he's automatically got veto power. Mm-hmm. You're working in a in a true collaborative environment. Somebody needs to be the decision maker, and so that that needs to be determined ahead of time. Who's who's going to make the decisions uh, on on those kinds of issues? And outside of that, 
check your ego at the door and just work together. The book they ought to be pointed to is Harlan Ellison's Partners in Wonder. There's 14 stories in that book, that, and every one of them he had a different collaborator. And it's it's actually as much fun or more fun to read his stories about how the stories were written as it is to read the stories. Excellent. Uh, Joelle? Um, David's points are, are great ones. The, the other one I would recommend is if you're going to work with someone who has collaborated with other writers before, see if you can find someone who's been a past collaborator and ask them about their experience. Um, I had the opportunity before starting on the multiverse with David Weber to sit down with Steve White and talk about how he and, and David got started writing together and the things that had had worked well for him and not. And so then I was able to go back and talk to David about those things and how it would be for us and make sure that I started with a clear view of what the expectations were. So these books, both of these books are going to be out next year. Um, but I, I think that this is a really great time to talk about just the, the writing process and how, and, and when we come back, when they come out, we'll talk about the books in particular. Um, and we'll probably have, uh, David and Eric on as well. But, um, this, this sort of behind the scenes stuff is really, really interesting. And I think really, um, can be really helpful to some writers out there as well as interesting your readers. The, uh, the books are coming up in 2016. They are The Road to Hell by David Weber and Joel Presby. That will be out in spring. And, um, The Span of Empire by Eric Flint and David Carrico. That will be out in, um, in summer, I think it'll be September book. And when's the road to hell? What month is that? I should know. Hell is out March 1st. March. It's a March book. So a March and September book. And we really look forward to those. David and Joel, thank you so much for being with us. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Now we continue with our complete audiobook serialization of John Ringo's Under a Graveyard Sky. This portion of Under a Graveyard Sky is provided by Audible.com. Get the complete audiobook at Audible.com now. If you are not a subscriber, you can get the entire audiobook free or choose from more than 100,000 other titles when you try Audible free for 30 days. Now here is another segment of John Ringo's novel of zombie infestation and the heroic humans who fight back, determined to pull the world from disaster and humanity itself from the brink of annihilation. It's all taking place under a graveyard sky. Chapter 11 Where's the usual mailman? The executive assistant for the manager of cost accountancy was a lady in her 40s with what Faith mentally dubbed teacher face. Faith sort of preferred being the mail girl to filing. It got her some exercise, and she got to meet and talk with people. Of course, half of them asked her why her sister was fighting a zombie. She'd given up trying to explain, which was a bit of a pain. And her thumb still hurt like heck, which was another pain. Didn't show for work, Faith said, handing over the next set of packages. A lot of it was actually mail. FedEx was having trouble with deliveries. No answer on his cell. H7... Left town, who knows. She was used to answering that question, too. Oh, my God, the executive assistant said, 
looking at her computer. What? Faith asked, craning over. Airplane crash, the EA said, gesturing at her screen. Go ahead. She turned up the sound slightly. These images were taken by a cell phone shortly after the crash, the voiceover was saying. The plane had landed in a suburb, and the caption read, Belafonte, Pennsylvania. All that could really be seen was billowing smoke and flame. It didn't even look like a plane. FAA reports that based upon the truncated call from the cockpit, one of the pilots may have succumbed to the secondary H7 virus. There are no reported survivors on the flight. No wonder FedEx isn't delivering, Faith said. They need to get vaccine distributed, the assistant said, shaking her head. This shouldn't be happening. Where's the vaccine? Depends on the type, Faith said, shrugging. The Pasteur method requires infected material, and it can only come from higher-order primates. Since there are only so many rhesus monkeys in the U.S., there's not much of a source from that. To do the other type requires growing the proteins. Two months minimum to do that. And then... That's not true, the EA snapped. Which part? Faith said, confused. I mean, I've talked to... It doesn't take that long to produce vaccine. They're just stalling because the vaccine companies want to run up the price. They are? Faith said, still confused. According to Dr. Curry, you have to build the protein crystal. Young lady, the EA said, calming down. I know you think you know what you're talking about, but this is the fault of the Bush administration allowing the drug companies to get runaway profits off of pharmaceuticals. They know that if they wait, they can ask anything for the vaccine and it will probably be dangerous to use even then. Vaccines are the cause of autism and allergies in children, another thing that the Bush administration allowed to run rampant. I think this virus was created by the drug companies just to make money. They're making money hand over fist just with the tranquilizers for those poor infected people. According to the FBI and the CDC, it appears to have been one person, Faith said mulishly. They've tracked the spread. Young people, the lady said, shaking her head. You believe anything you're told, don't you? Just because it's on the TV doesn't make it true. Okay, Faith said. I guess you could be right. Trust me, I'm right, the lady said. I don't know who's been filling your head with all that other nonsense, but this is definitely the fault of the drug companies. Okay, Faith said, frowning. Well, I better get back to work. Mail to deliver. Yes, you should, the EA said, turning her attention away. Faith continued on her rounds, dutifully dropping packages at offices. She got the usual round of questions. Where's the regular guy? Didn't report for work. No answer on his cell or home. Where did your sister run into the zombie? She didn't. It was a misunderstanding. There were more rumors. Everybody had a rumor. The H7 was God's judgment on the world. It wasn't really the H7 virus causing people to go zombie. It was all a plot by, choose one or more, the DOD, the Republicans, the pharmaceutical companies, the Democrats, Greenpeace, the news media to boost ratings. Until she started delivering the mail, she'd never heard of the Trilateral Commission or Skull and Bones. She'd had to have them explain, and woe betide if she questioned the explainer's arguments, 
she was wrong. Anything that she'd heard from Sophia or Tom wasn't true. It was all a plot by somebody. Hey, Giselle, she said, dropping off packages for Tom's office. Is my uncle around? He is, Giselle said. He just got back from a meeting out of office. Does he have a minute for his second favorite niece? She typed a message into her computer and then nodded. Go ahead. Hey, Uncle Tom, Faith said. Not to be unfriendly, but can you make it quick? Tom asked. He was reading his computer in jeans and a t-shirt. Not normal executive wear. I'm sort of swamped. So who really started the zombie virus? Faith asked. Still unknown actor, Tom replied. So not the trilateral commission? She asked. Tom looked up and grinned at her. Never, ever trust a furphy, Tom said, still grinning. Is it possible it was an organized terrorist plot? Yes. What's the rest? Big bankers? That one never came up, Faith said, blinking. Drug companies, the Bush administration, something called Skull and Bones? If you were working anywhere else, it probably would have, Tom said, leaning back in his chair. Banks and bankers generally get blamed first, and often. The blogs are full of conspiracy theories about the H7. And every group that has previously been cast as the villains in some other context is being blamed by some other group. That's the way that people handle this sort of thing. During the Middle Ages, the Black Death was due to the devil, and they killed cats to get rid of it. Since it was carried by rats, that was the worst thing they could do. But no. It wasn't any of the above. I tried to tell people that, Faith said desperately. Don't bother, Tom said, shaking his head. They won't believe you. They only believe trusted sources, like some guy who says he's a researcher for the CDC, on some forum they read every day, who doesn't know an enzyme from a lice, and is a janitor at a minor research lab in Peoria, Kansas but they'll trust them over all the experts because they speak truth to power. So just listen, and mostly ignore it. Does it really take two months to just produce a vaccine? Faith said. Nobody believes that. I suppose I should get Curry to do a simple explanation and distribute it, Tom said, making a note. But yes, from what I understand, the protein crystals take that long to grow on the matrix. Then you have to start making the vaccine from those. And then there's a minimum four-month approval window. And even with that, the vaccine isn't going to be the best. They rarely get it exactly right the first time. It's going to have more harmful side effects than one that's been through the full approval process. But if they can get that done before, well, everything comes apart, they'll distribute it anyway. Because, you know, the world's coming to an end. He gestured at his computer. Don't bother arguing. If there's something that really seems relevant, bring it to me, Tom said. Anything else? Pretty much everybody knows the bank has some vaccine, Faith said nervously. Some people say it's from monkeys, others that it's from people. The nice thing about all the outrageous rumors going around is that that's just one more, Tom said, smiling tightly, which is good. Anything else? No, Faith said unhappily. If I can get in before O-Doc 30 tonight, we'll talk, Tom said. But no zombie hunting. Been there, done that, Faith said, holding up her thumb. I'm sworn off until I can use a shotgun. Teasers suck. 
thanks for this little meeting, Tom said, pointing at the door with both hands. Now I've got a boatload of work to do, and you should have a cartload. Actually, I'm nearly done, Faith said. With this load, anyway. Faith dropped off her last few packages, then headed for the elevator. Just getting to the mailroom was a pain. Boda didn't occupy the entire building, but they had the top 15 floors. The mailroom, on the other hand, was in the basement. Faith really didn't like heights, and every time she got on the elevator, she was reminded of that. There were three other people waiting for the elevator when she got there. They waited for the group on board to get out, then Faith apologetically pushed her card into the corner. Where's the regular guy? One of the men asked. He was wearing a Boda golf shirt and slacks, which Faith had learned was uniform from middle manager. She'd guessed he was an IT from the look. Didn't show for work, Faith said. No answer on his phone. There's a rash of that going around, the guy said, shrugging. You act like it's some sort of joke, the lady snapped. She was probably an EA or typist, judging by her clothes and age. Mid-twenties and dressed to show off her talents. She grabbed the manager by his shirt collar. Bad things are happening. Hey, the guy said, calm down. You calm down, the woman screamed. Then she screamed again and started scratching at her arms. What's on me? What's on me? She started stripping with practiced speed. Oh, no, 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 Faith said. Calm down. Just don't do this now. The woman shrieked and continued tearing at her clothes as the two men backed away from her. Zombie, Faith yelled. She didn't even have her baton, so she snap-kicked the woman in the stomach, causing her to double over. Faith picked up the cart and slammed it onto the woman's head, smashing her to the ground. Unfortunately, the cart was rather light, didn't knock the secretary out, and came flying back up in a welter of undeliverable packages and internal memos. The woman screamed again and leapt at Faith, who had exactly no room to maneuver. Faith blocked the woman's chomping mouth up and away with a forearm under her chin, then secured her wrist in a come-along. From there, she was able to twist under and get a chokehold on the woman's throat. The zombie was still wearing high heels, if not a shirt or bra, and as the door to the elevator opened, they both tumbled into the corridor. The group that was waiting for the elevator initially scattered. Then several of them stepped around the two wrestling women and into the elevator, while others apparently decided there were other places they'd rather be. The IT type darted out of the elevator and sprinted in a more or less random direction. Faith suddenly found herself wrestling a zombie completely alone in the corridor. Thanks for all the help and support, she screamed. The zombie was incredibly strong for her size, and Faith could already feel herself wearing out, trying to maintain the holds. Could somebody kindly call security? I thought you were security. The woman was peeking up from over her cubicle, and Faith now realized she had gone from alone to attracting a crowd. I'm the new male girl, Faith snapped out in one continuous stream as the thrashing zombie started rolling her down the hallway. Call security. Got a report of somebody wrestling a zombie on the 32nd floor, Durante said, looking at the alert code. 
Doing both the BERT thing and his regular job was starting to wear on him, and this was the ninth zombie alert today. On the other hand, six of those had been false alarms. Which means two zombies, Kaplan said standing up. I'll take my team. That was another segment in our complete audiobook serialization of Under a Graveyard Sky by John Ringo. And that's it for the podcast. Thanks to Audible.com and to podcast theme composer Ruth Judkowitz. And the screams of a billion eagles born from the magical transformation of Mount Rushmore into bird flesh and a field full of golden lauds, which ought to be the name of a flower but probably isn't, to David Carrico and Joel Presby, co-authors with Eric Flint and David Weber on new entries in much-beloved series. Please join us next time here at the hammering heart of science fiction and fantasy. And keep reaching for the stars. The Bain Free Radio Hour is brought to you by Bain Books Audio Drama. Presenting dramatized audio plays of the best science fiction and fantasy with a professional cast and cinema quality soundtracks. Now available, Eric Flint's Islands, based on the novella by Eric Flint. Also available, Larry Correa's Detroit Christmas, based on the novella by Larry Correa, set in the world of the Grim Noir Chronicles at BaneEbooks.com. Just put Islands and Detroit Christmas in the search bar and enter a world of listening pleasure. Bane Books Audio Drama. Thank you.